there's no tangible line between a great client outcome and your compensation. There is a very tangible line between a new client and new client assets in your compensation. If compounding interest is the eighth wonder of the world, then maybe compounding fees is the eighth deadly sin. Welcome to Blind Spots, a podcast where we're helping you fill the gap between what you want to do with your money and what you actually do. We are professional investors, writers, and financial planners helping you navigate the complexities of finance to optimize what you can control and cut out the rest. Join your host, Nick Shermans and Aaron Varghese, as we discuss the questions and nuances surrounding everyday money management. Investment advisory services offered through Pure Portfolios, a registered investment advisor with the U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission. Nick Shermans and Aaron Varghese work for Pure Portfolios. Any opinions expressed by Nick and Aaron or any podcast guest are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinions of Pure Portfolios. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon for investment decisions. It should not be construed as legal or tax advice and is not intended to replace the advice of a qualified attorney or tax professional. Clients of Pure Portfolios may maintain positions and securities discussed in this podcast. This information is not an offer or solicitation to buy or sell securities. The information contained may have been compiled from third-party sources and is believed to be reliable. So today we're going to talk about why we dislike Wall Street firms. And this came about as Aaron, my co-host, and I were talking, and I was railing against Wall Street one day. I was going over a prospect's portfolio, and I was finding conflict after conflict. And she cut me off and said, Nick, you seem to have a problem with Wall Street. I get that. What firms do it well? And eventually I want to get into that topic, but I think it's important for our listeners in our prospective clients, especially those that work with a Wall Street advisor, why that's not a very friendly place for your hard-earned money. And some of these things are obvious. Some of them are not so obvious. We're, we're going to tell you exactly why. We're going we're gonna to peel back the cloak of secrecy and get into why a Wall Street firm is not the best place for your money. So first things first, can you just give our listeners an idea of what is a Wall Street firm? Maybe they're working with an advisor and they don't know that they're at a Wall Street firm. That's a very good question. And again, I don't want to get sued, but... You don't have to name drop, but give I'm some general I'm not going to name drop. And trust me, trust me, Aaron. I would love to name drop because... And, and I'll give our readers a link. The, there'll be a link in the, in the show notes below about where they can see the worst offenders. So there's a website that tracks Wall Street fines from 2000 to today. And it's the same list of offenders, and, and we're talking billions and billions and billions of dollars. And the offenses actually change. It's actually quite interesting to look at how wide the range is for offenses. So they invent new ways of ripping people off. And I would encourage folks to check that out. The link will be in the notes. A Wall Street firm is a publicly traded financial services company. So think about all the major banks in this country. Most have wealth management arms. Think about publicly traded wirehouses or insurance companies. And if you're unsure if your advisor works at one of these firms, go ahead and Google it. Is my, insert your advisory firm name, a publicly traded company? And Google should be able to give you an answer. Pretty quickly. Very quickly. And, and then you might say, okay, Nick, why does it matter if my company's a publicly traded firm? And there's a very short answer to this. Public companies have a mandate 
a socially accepted mandate to maximize shareholder profit. So in short, their overarching goal, what drives their behavior is maximizing profit for shareholders. On the fiduciary advisory side, advisors have a mandate if they're working under a fiduciary umbrella, which many of, many of these public, publicly traded companies say that they do, to act in the best interest of clients. Well, if you pit those two things together, maximizing the bottom line for shareholders or doing right by clients, who do you think wins? The answer is maximizing profits every single time. And there's a reason why a lot of these firms, a lot of these publicly traded advisory firms are the most fined companies year in and year out. And I'm not talking about within just the just the financial services space. I'm, I'm talking about in all of corporate America. Financial services lead by a mile in corporate fines. It's not even close. It's because when push comes to shove and you're weighing doing right by clients and maximizing the bottom line, the bottom line wins out every single time. So we're in the relationship between advisor and client and then the top of the house instructions where is the disconnect between incentive, between product push? Where does the client lose out in that relationship? Well, look, humans are smart. Humans are very smart. And I'm a big fan of incentive systems, studying incentive systems and how, and how human behavior responds. And without fail, most of these advisors at these Wall Street firms are, are well-intentioned people. The incentives bestowed upon them are driving their behavior, okay? And if I'm an advisor at a Wall Street firm and I'm incentivized, like 90% of my compensation is based upon bringing in additional assets to the firm, that's what I'm going to focus on, right? So I'm out on the front lines. I'm creeping on LinkedIn. I'm going to networking events. I'm hosting client events and saying, bring your five best friends with money. I'm taking people golf. Like they're, they're immersed in these prospecting activities. Hell, there, there's a firm that actually knocks on people's doors going around drumming up business or trying to drum up business. And one of these people, this is a kind of a derail, but one of these people came to my house and I, I was listening to the gentleman give his pitch and this person had no clue what I did for a living. And I said, if you're out here banging on doors in 90 degree heat, who's watching over your clients? And I think that's the, that's the message. If 90% of your activity and your behavior is based upon bringing in new assets, where, do, where does optimizing client outcomes fit into all that? And the answer is it doesn't because advisors don't get paid when their clients achieve great outcomes. Yeah, they might stay a client and you'll receive that future income stream by keeping them, but, but, but there's no tangible line between a great client outcome and your compensation. There is a very tangible line between a new client and new client assets in your compensation. Okay. So you say these people are subject to a fiduciary standard. They don't have their client's best interest in mind because of the misalignment of incentives. So why do people continue to do business with Wall Street firms? So the people aren't really the problem. There's some great people that work in Wall Street firms, some well-intentioned people that work at Wall Street firms, some very smart people, but the corporate incentive systems bestowed upon them can lead to bad actors and poor client outcomes just because they're focused on selling rather than client outcomes. People continue to do business with these firms despite knowledge that they might not be acting in good faith. I mean, if you turn on a, a CNBC or you click through Twitter, it's almost a certainty that you'll find 
a big bank or a wirehouse getting in trouble for something. I think people continue to work with these firms. There, there's an element of social proof, right? Like if you know that mega bank has been around for 80 years and they manage a hundred billion in client assets and your neighbor might work with them, you might know someone that works for them. There's a bit of social proof there, meaning they've proved they're a proven entity. It might not be optimal, but you might think it's quote unquote safe. Yeah. On the opposite side, let's say you're thinking about hiring an independent firm, a guy who's a solo shop, he manages 20 million, his fees are much lower, he's a super smart guy, but no one really knows about him. He's a solo person. There's some risk there. You know, what if he turns out to be a crook? Like that's the opposite of social proof. I don't know the word for it, but people like to be wrong with the herd. And to be honest, most people are just petrified of making a catastrophic mistake. Mm -hmm. Like if you were to put money with this solo guy with 20 million that no one knows about, and it turned out that he ripped you off and took your money and moved to the Caribbean, that would be a tough pill to swallow. That, that'd be a tough pill to convey to your spouse how everything that you work for is gone because you took a bet on a flyer. Yeah. It's, it's kind of it's, all about name recognition. Yeah, it's 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 much safer to go with the big herd, the big public company, because you know at least your your money's gonna be there. But in the back of your mind, you also know it's not optimal too. You're paying too much, your advisor probably hasn't called you in a year. He keeps trying to sell you weird stuff. So, you know, there's a trade-off. Yeah. Well, another pe another reason that people continue to do business with these Wall Street firms is because they think that all advisors are the same. So go into that a little bit. Why do you think that there's this perception around just the term financial advisor and why that kind of gets kicked to people easily? Well, I think the first thing is it's very confusing. Anyone under the sun can call themselves a financial advisor. And it's very hard for the investing public to determine who is a professional and who is a salesperson masquerading as a trusted advisor. The SEC has tried to tackle this problem. I think they've made it worse. And then you throw in these very obscure and confusing structures where some advisors have to be a fiduciary sometimes and do not have to be a fiduciary in other times. So it all comes back to most people view all advisors as being the same. And again, that, that, that might've been true in the eighties and nineties. It's certainly not true today. And what we hope to achieve through the podcast today is just helping people understand the difference between a salesperson and a trusted advisor and why working with a wall street advisor is not necessarily optimal and, and, and some of the conflicts that come with that. So let's talk about expenses and fees. What is wrong with Wall Street when it comes to these? Well, they're certainly not going to be the cheapest. Back to my opening comment, they have a duty to maximize the bottom line. And standard fee across Wall Street firms is going to be around 1%. That's, that's for the fee that you would pay your advisor, the management fee. And then Wall Street firms are notorious for using mutual funds and hedge fund mutual funds and private equity, which come with another layer of costs. So the long story short is if you're working with a Wall Street firm, you're, you're going to be paying a premium for advice. You know, they, they office in expensive places and high rise buildings. They have elaborate offices. They hold client events. They spend a ton on advertising and marketing. Your Wall Street person is highly compensated. 
again, maximizing the bottom line. So all these things tie into a premium price for their service. Now I will say for high net worth investors who have over 25 million, let's say, Wall Street firms are fees are more in line at that level. Where it gets egregious is in, and I use the term egregious, but where it gets gouging is between that one to $7 million space. That's where you're certainly paying up for advice. And again, it's 2021, like you don't need to be paying 1.5% all in cost of investing. That's just, uh, that's way too much. Yeah. So let's say someone's listening to this podcast right now and they're thinking, okay, I work with a Wall Street firm. I think I might be paying too much. How can they know for sure? The first place to look is on your statement. They have to itemize the fees that you're paying. Okay. So if you get a quarterly statement, you should see a number there. Just multiply that by four to get a rough estimation of what you're paying every year to your advisor. Now there comes a caveat there. If your advisor is investing in mutual funds, that fee will not show up on your statement. Okay. So a quick shortcut, if, if you have a statement, you see that you own a mutual fund, type in the ticker to Yahoo Finance or Morningstar, and you'll be able to see the percentage that you pay that mutual fund. Clients are footing the bill for that annual expense for the mutual fund. So to figure out what you're paying, a good place to start, is on your statement, annualize your management fee, add in the mutual fund expense ratios, you know, commissions, if your advisor is buying and selling something, that might add a little bit. If your advisor is trying to sell you like whole life insurance or an annuity, know that they make a large percentage on the dollar amount placed with those products. So if your advisor is coming at you pushing a certain product, make sure you ask them, how are you compensated on this? Do you get more by recommending product A versus product B. What conflicts of interest are going on here? If you understand the incentive, you can understand the advice. And we can link to this in the show notes below, but we actually have a guide um, from Pure Portfolio's blog that goes through kind of a report card for your financial advisor that you can go through and say, do they do this? Yes or no? Kind of tally up your points at the bottom. It's it's the higher the score, the better. So if your score is between seven and nine, you're working with a professional. If your score is below that, between five and seven, let's say, or four and seven, it's worth another look. And if your score is less than five, run, don't walk away from your advisor. And then one more thing, Aaron. So we also have developed a cost of investing spreadsheet for <laughs> prospects to plug in the amount they have invested, what they're paying in a percentage to their investment manager, what the mutual fund costs are, the cost of owning the assets are, and we display that in percentage and in dollar figure. And we actually can show people the impact of excessive fees over five, 15 and 30 years. And when you think about compounding, right? If you invest a hundred bucks today, it earns 5%, you earn interest upon interest and that compounding grows over time. It's a very powerful thing. Well, that works in the opposite too, where it, it, if you're giving up 1% year after year after year, you're basically missing out on that amount that you could be investing and earning a rate of return. So, so we actually capture that negative compounding over time. So you're not just paying up for this year and missing out, you're paying up every year going forward. And that compounds in the gap. Like we've showed this to people and they're amazed at how much 
that they're leaving on the table by paying excessive fees. So if compounding interest is the eighth wonder of the world, then maybe compounding fees is the eighth deadly sin. I like that, Aaron. I like that. All right. So, Nick, you used to work at a publicly traded firm. You were a Wall Street man at one time. Can you remember a specific time or incident when you just thought something is just not right here? There was a couple, a few things come to mind. One, I, I had to wear a suit and tie every day, which I hated. I had a client meeting. I, I'll never forget this. I had a client meeting at a assisted living facility. Very nice one. Upscale, downtown Seattle. I was suited and booted. And I was getting on the elevator. And this group of nice older ladies came out. And one of them stopped and looked at me and said, that's a nice suit. What, what do you sell, young man? And I was like, wow. She just basically pinned me. She basically pinned me as a salesperson because I had a suit. And I think that's a very astute observation. Think about who wears suits in 2021. Almost always it's someone selling something or, or a politician and they're selling something too, although it's a different, it's a different product. So that stuck with me internally every Monday morning at 8 a.m. This is how I would start my week. I would sit in a sales meeting, a company-wide sales meeting. And all we talked about is who closed what, what was in your pipeline, and how you were going to capture those additional assets or that additional opportunity. There was nothing about investment success, celebrating a client outcome, client compliments, retaining clients. There was nothing about that. 90% of what we talked about when we gathered as a group was what have you done for me lately? What are you closing? What are you going to close? And these, these middle managers kept meticulous spreadsheets of everything that we did, everything that was in the pipeline, and they would report it every week to their bosses and their bosses would report it to their bosses, bosses. And it was just, it was just ridiculous. It's like, you know, I, I was a CFA charter holder. I, I viewed myself as a professional investor. Sure. We worked under a, a fiduciary umbrella, but it was clear what was important. It was clear who was in favor. It was based on what they did, what they brought in. And a piece of me died every day that I was there. Like I, I just couldn't stomach it. And it wasn't specific to my former employer. It went on at every publicly traded company. It's how they think it's in the culture. Um, and, and clients would be appalled if they sat in on these meetings. Like there's no way in hell the powers that be would ever let an outside client or prospective client listen to these meetings because it was very obvious what was going on there. <laughs> I can't hear you. I have definitely a similar experience working in a publicly traded bank, not on the investment side, but on the retail banking side, but just the same thing. Monday morning meetings, what's in your pipeline? What are your activities this week to make sure that you hit your sales goals? You know, they kind of flip it back on you so that you can get your incentive and whatnot, but definitely a, an interesting experience to have working on the other side of the table. I don't regret my career path. And again, there's good people that work at these companies. Very nice. I'm still friends with a lot of them today, but it's nice to see that side because that model has worked really well for the last 10 to 20 years. It's very lucrative for these big banks and, and big publicly traded companies. In my opinion, it's not a viable playbook for the next 10 plus years. Like I, I find it very hard to believe that my kids, 
I'm 39. My oldest is seven. That my kids are going to walk into a fancy high-rise office with a bunch of suits and ties that are operating the same way that they are today. Like I, I, I just can't see that model being favorable for the next generation. And like I said, the incumbents, the establishment has no incentive to change because it's been very good for them. So kind of the ethos of why we launched Pure Portfolios is we found people want advice. Like advice is more in vogue than ever. They just don't want to pay 1.5% to a broker to get that advice. So kind of the niche that we see is lowering the overall cost of investing, delivering advice through a personalized, customized human being. So, you know, think of it as a hybrid between a low-cost Vanguard and a, and a personalized service of today's traditional advisor. That's, that's what Pure Portfolios, that's the gap that we're trying to fill. So since we're getting into the smaller independent firm topics here, why would someone want to choose an RIA or a registered investment advisor over a Wall Street firm? And by the way, for those who are listening, if you see the letters RIA, that is not a designation. It's merely just what we're called, a registered investment advisor. That has to act in a fiduciary capacity. Right. Well, that is a great question, Aaron. So why would someone work for an independent firm, an RIA over a Wall Street firm? One, your Wall Street advisor is going to leave one day. And it's happening right now. So, so I track big public advisory firms that leave to start their own RIA companies. And, and the trend is really heating up. And I can't get into all of the reasons why someone would leave. I can share with you why, why I left. And you, know, you could probably guess based on my earlier comments is I wanted to be free from the shackles of someone telling me how to think about financial markets someone telling me how to invest, someone telling me that I need to bring on business. I wanted to be completely independent, not answering to a board of directors or a shareholder. I wanted to answer to my clients. So fully independent. We don't answer to anybody but our clients. And no one is telling me what products to push or what funds to invest in. It's just a much cleaner incentive system. And I think that's huge. Independence is huge because again, incentives drive human behavior. When I'm not answering to any of the higher powers, I can, I can choose the way that I want to operate my business. One thing that is bothering me about all of the Wall Street advisors that are starting their own firms, and I think that's great that they're doing that, but one thing that bothers me about that, and I don't even know if I'm answering your question, but if I could just finish this thought, a lot of them are setting up firms that are doing the exact same thing as their former employer, the same fee structure, the same offerings, the same everything. And to me, it's mind boggling how you have a blank canvas. You can paint that canvas any way that you like, and you're painting it the same way that you've always painted it for 30 years. At the very least, lower the overall cost of investing for your clients, give them a carrot, give them an incentive to come over. You can take the advisor out of Wall Street. It's really hard to take the Wall Street out of the advisor, especially when you're talking about someone that's worked there for 30 years and yeah. know that I, that I only worked for a Wall Street firm for six years. So I was able to get out before I was institutionalized. <laughs> yeah. To, to quickly answer your question, working with an independent company, it's, it's the independent thing, lower fees, you have to be a fiduciary and you can truly focus on client outcomes. Like at Pure Portfolios, we don't have any salespeople. Like we're not salespeople. Like I have a blog, we tell our story, we do the podcast. We're trying to educate folks. Sure, we have a marketing consultant, but that is siloed off from client-facing advisors. 
So we, we hired a third party marketing company to help us with our website, to help us optimize search, to help us generate leads, but no client facing advisor is told, Hey, you have to bring in 5 million this quarter. Like that pollutes and makes everything toxic. So it's siloed off. Yeah. And I think if I tried to set up a Monday morning meeting with you, you'd probably tell me to go somewhere else. Well, that, that, that kills morale. Like who wants to start their week by having someone tell them that they need to close more business and you know, what have you done for me lately? It's just, it's, it's soul sucking. It's terrible. So at what point in your time in the industry, did you think to yourself, I can do this better? Well, much of what we do is rooted in common sense, right? Humans want advice. They don't want to pay an arm and a leg, an arm and a leg for it. Well, we're going to lower our fees. Investors don't know this, but paying a fixed 1% to your advisor, they get paid that 1% if they do a good job on the investment management or a bad job. We, we publish our fees on our website. Our fees are itemized on our client portals. We only show clients net of fee performance. It shouldn't be a mystery what you're paying your advisor, right? It should be very open and transparent. I've had numerous mm -hmm. potential clients, which are now clients, tell me that they had no clue what their previous advisor was charging them. When they asked their advisor what they were paying, they weren't given a straightforward answer. Like that is a ma that's a major red flag. There was a study a few years back, 65 percent of retail investors have no clue what they're paying advisors. Like that is a huge problem. Well, and we ask a lot of potential clients that same question of what are you paying your current advisor? And I think because the standard has been, you know, that 1% range, most people would say, oh, you know, I think it's about 1%, but they really don't, like you said, have a crystal clear idea of what their all in cost of investing is. Yeah. And then the last thing is, is we don't have any sales goals. We don't have salespeople and we never will have salespeople because, you know, when you mix client outcomes and compensation plans, like things get messy. You change the incentives, you change the outcomes. Well, they don't want to change the incentives because they're, they're printing money. It's the same thing with these wall street firms on the front door. They're, they're saying that they want to act in clients, best interests and their fiduciaries and yada, yada uh, on the back end, they're throwing millions of dollars at lobbyist co companies, lobbyist firms to promote their interest on Capitol Hill, to keep things exactly the way that they are, because it's so lucrative for them, which is another reason why I don't like them. You've, you've heard me rail on and on. Aaron, you asked some good questions. This is for clients that work with the Wall Street firms. If you're comfortable and you like your person, that's fine. Know that it's not optimal. You know, there's comfort in numbers. There's comfort in social proof, knowing that this is an entity that's been around for a long time. But know some of the sharpest, some of the brightest investment minds that I know, some of the best professional investors that I know run independent advisory firms, RIA, registered investment advisors. And m many of them are having success. Many Wall Street advisors are jumping ship in, in either joining these firms or starting their own. There's a major transformation going on within wealth management. The Wall Street playbook is not going to work well for the next 10 years. You're probably paying up. You might even be getting conflicted advice. If you're working with the Wall Street firm, I would encourage you to at least compare what you're currently doing to a independent firm. You have nothing to lose and you might even be super glad that you did. That about wraps up this week's episode of Blind Spots. All of the links that we mentioned will be in the show notes below. We recently also released a video where Nick reviews a model portfolio and gives a professional investor's perspective on portfolio fees, tax efficiency, risk metrics, and conflicts of interest. 
If you'd like us to review your portfolio, you can send a note to insight at pureportfolios.com or visit pureportfolios.com slash free portfolio analysis. Thanks for listening to Blind Spots. We'll see you next time. Thank you.